Hi folks, and welcome to the very first episode of my sparkly brand new podcast, The Gareth Seawood Show. Yep, as you can tell, I spent a lot of time and deliberation coming up with that imaginative title. Yeah, I know conventional wisdom suggests that if you don't have any actual name recognition, which I don't, then you should use a title designed to appeal to the specific target audience or demographic demographic that it's particularly aimed at. Uh, the thing is, though, although this will probably be predominantly centred around liberty and libertarian themes, and, and my passion is for economics as well, so there'll be a fair amount of that too, uh, there'll be stuff that has no real connection to any of that sort of thing as well. Just general human interest stuff, basically, uh, whatever happens to be on my mind, or if something I feel would be cool to do an episode on, really. So I didn't want to be too specific with a title and have too much of a pigeonholed audience so i opted for the generic eponymous option <laughs> and who knows <laughs> who knows maybe one day that'll have some name recognition value you never know do you okay as i say this is the first episode and i have a fantastic first guest lined up uh, be- be- before we get to that i've got to tell you about a great exclusive offer that i have for listeners of this show. As many of you will know, I'm a member of the Libertarian Party, and in October, the official party conference is taking place in Manchester, which is going to see the launch, amongst other things, of our newly revamped manifesto. Now, tickets are still available for the conference, but as a listener of this show, I'm offering you a massive 25% discount on tickets to the conference. And this is not for a limited time either. This discount will apply right up to the day of the conference. So this exclusive offer um, to you will be available right up to the day of the conference. All you all you have to do to book your tickets is to go to the party's official website, uh, which is at www.libertarianparty.co.uk. And on there you'll find a link that'll take you to the Eventbrite page where you can get your tickets. So just put in the code Libertarian123, and that's all one word with a capital L, I believe it's case sensitive, and you can claim your 25% discount. That's Libertarian123 for 25% off, and I will see you at the Victoria Warehouse in Manchester on Saturday the 19th of October. Okay, folks, let's get down to it and get the ball rolling with this first episode. As I, as I just said, the Libertarian Party are launching the new manifesto in October. Incidentally, some of the policies are already available for digital download at the party's website. Um, again, www.libertarianparty.co.uk. Um, they're in PDF format and they're along with the written constitution proposal, which I highly recommend you check out and I will definitely be covering that more in depth in a future episode. Uh, One thing I want to do on this show is to take a deeper look at some of the main policies within that manifesto uh, by discussing it with one of the main authors of the policy so that we can learn and perhaps get a better understanding of each policy and see the thought processes and the intent behind them. Today I'm delighted to welcome to the show Dan Lidicutt. Dan is the Home Affairs spokesman for the Libertarian Party and he's here to discuss the new Home Affairs policy. A good friend and colleague of mine within the party, Dan is one of the busiest and hardest working guys I know. Uh, Along with having his hands full with his own private endeavours outside the party, uh, he wears many hats within the party. As I said, he's the Home Affairs spokesman, he's also the regional coordinator for the Midlands area, as well as being the official Libertarian candidate for North West Leicestershire which incidentally in the local elections back in May, I think it was, um, at the first time of trying, he got a very respectable 14% of the vote, which is great considering he came basically from nowhere. And it, and it's a good foundation to build upon for future campaigns and elections. So uh, well done to Dan for that. And as a colleague of mine on the NCC, uh, which is the coordinating committee within the Libertarian Party, I also know that Dan does so much work uh, behind the scenes that most people will never really know about. 
Um, and, and I think it's important to point out as well that everybody in the NCC all do it voluntarily. Nobody gets paid or receives any compensation or financial benefit. They all work hard, giving up their free time, uh, whilst working around other jobs too. And, and, and they all do it for free, you know. They, they do it because they're passionate. They're passionate about the cause and they believe in liberty. And, and a lot of it can be mundane and time-consuming, but it's stuff that needs to be done and is generally a thankless task. So I, I'd, I'd like to make an appreciative, an appreciative tip of the hat uh, to all my friends and colleagues on the NCC and the Libertarian Party uh, and thank them for the work that they do. Anyway, back on point with Dan. Dan has a great website you can check out at www.danlidicutt.com and you can follow his official pages on all the usual uh, social media platforms as well such as Facebook and Twitter so go check him out and give him a follow on those too. So without further ado it's my pleasure to introduce Dan Lidicutt. Hello Dan and thank you for being on the very first episode of the Gareth Seawood Show. How are you doing? I'm doing great and thanks for inviting me. I, I, I'd forgotten it was the first, so I feel very honoured <laughs> to be well, number one on your list. You, you, you're my favourite guest so far. So, uh... <laughs> I'm glad to hear it. I would be very disappointed if you've got a more favourite one at this point. Excellent. Um, as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, um, I was saying about how the Libertarian Party are launching our brand new, or revamped rather, manifesto this October. Mm. And in that manifesto, um, I'm hoping to sort of look at some of the main policies and speak to people such as yourself who are the main sort of uh, drive behind those policies. And today, obviously, we're here to discuss Home Affairs, um, which is available for digital download on the website now. It's one of the ones that have, we've uh, previewed, if you like, before the official launch. Um, so I was just wondering if we could just sort of start from the beginning with the policy and if you could tell us a bit about how uh, the process of how the policy was written and developed and what was the sort of your intent behind the policy mm. okay well that, that's a really good question to be fair to everyone who has ever contributed to our policies the home affairs policy that we have now didn't just spring into existence over the last few months, although a lot of hard work has been put in by myself and other members of the NCC, um, including Aidan Powellsland and Zoe Sophie and various others um, who have really, you know, they, they've gone above and beyond. Yeah. I think what a lot of people don't really realise is that as a truly grassroots party, the Libertarian Party doesn't have any paid full-time staff. Right. And so when, when you see policies come out, it really is um, a grassroots sort of endeavour. And the Home Affairs policy drew a lot from previous manifestos. And really, it's been refined um, and added to. But certainly a lot of what's in there, you know, has been a, a existing policy for the Libertarian Party for quite a while. Um, the The way they were brought about was partly through consultation um, with members of the party. It also went through to our policy conference earlier this year, where all party members were given the opportunity to vote on whether they accepted the policies in our manifesto. And um, I'm pleased to say that the Home Affairs policy was well received and received an affirmative yeah. vote. Um, but let's not let's not kid ourselves that any policy is ever totally complete you know it's it's always a work in progress um life changes circumstances change but what i feel about the libertarian party's policies and how they differ from a lot of other parties and politicians is that they are really based in principles rather than sort of ever-changing um expediency shall we say you know, politicians can often appear to flip-flop, be wishy-washy, say one thing one minute, another thing the next. And they often appear as though they are doing something for unusual or unexplained motives. And what I really like about the Libertarian Party is that we, we really are trying to build on what are the core principles of individual liberty and the correct role of government. And so you'll find there's a lot less of that 
you know, but but along with that, of course, we are not populist. You know, we're not developing policies that are designed to appeal to give us votes and therefore power and office. No. What we're trying to do is say, look, the whole system's broken. We all know it's broken. But the way people deal with its brokenness at the moment is by um, trying to use its brokenness against itself. And so what you end up with is essentially, you know, to put it very simply, the left wing versus the right wing. Uh, and you always end up with the government in power each, that's, that's each, each election. What we're saying is, no, there is something far more fundamental. Instead of just swapping sides, instead of batting the ping pong ball over the net backwards and forwards, we need to get right down to the foundations. And that means the principles. And that means the whole way we look at government and what it's for and where it gets its authority from and how it has the power it does, all of that needs looking at. And so... The home affairs policy is one area where we're doing that. And of course, there are many others, but, you know, home affairs is my area of responsibility. Absolutely. I mean, it seems to be as well for decades, if not ever, that um, the main sort of parties, well, all political parties, they use um, issues to politically point score rather than actually look at the core of the problems. So that's why I think what you're saying is we actually look at the principles involved and rather than try and score political points, we actually want to address the issues for the benefit of the country as a whole. And um, it's also interesting the process in which you say the policy was developed where members were vote, voted on um, various aspects of the policy. So I'm not aware of any, I mean they may do, but I'm not aware of any other parties which actually uh, do that process. Well, from my point of view, that's really important because the Libertarian Party being grassroots movement, you know, we don't have big co corporate um, donors, you know, millionaire backing or anything like that. It really is from the grassroots, from the ground up. And that is a reflection, um, as I'm sure you will already be, you know, very aware of. That's a reflection of the true direction of the flow of power. And that is that from a libertarian's point of view, if the state or the government has any power at all, it is because it was granted that power by the people. You know, it is a bottom up sort of flow, not a top down. The, the, it, I suppose the Libertarian Party leaves itself open for criticism, you know, because its leadership is not telling people where to go or dragging them in a direction. What we are doing is coalescing around agreement on these core principles about the fact that power rightly flows from the people to the government and not the other way around. Can you tell us what the key areas that the Home Affairs Policy addresses and can you give us a general outline overall of its purpose? Okay, so... When, when addressing the home affairs policies, the, the core principle, you know, built on there is that it's not for the state to dictate people's individual moral conscience. Okay. And so if the state has any authority over that, it, it should really be only in the defense of the individual. And that is to say people should be free to choose the direction of their life provided that their choices do not infringe on the rights of others. And so, you know, in two words, home affairs policy is really freedom and responsibility. And that is you can't maintain individual freedom without using it responsibly. Um, but at the same time, you can't misuse individual freedom without being held responsible for your actions. So that's kind of the, the principle on which it's based. And uh, manifesto this time round focuses on basically five key areas, and that's punishment, prisons and community sentences, law and courts, immigration, drugs, including alcohol and tobacco and policing. And so over those five areas, we've developed some policies which we believe return to people the individual freedoms which were, um, well, infringed on really over the many years by the state. But with that, they have returned to them the responsibility for the consequences of their choices. Now, I, I recognise that a lot of people will, they want to have back the freedom, but they don't want to be held responsible for their actions. But as I believe and as libertarians will accept,
you can't have one without the other. And so what's on offer out there as an alternative is that you, you lose your freedom and you're not held responsible. Um, and we're saying that's no good. You know, thriving, growing people and nations must be built on individual freedom. And so with that comes responsibility. Absolutely. That's one of the things I'm always sort of stressing about freedom, that freedom in essence equals responsibility. And that's sort of one of the key things uh, that crit critics of libertarianism try and overlook, I think. They think they want everybody running around wild without paying any consequences for any actions, <laughs> don't they? You know? That's right, that's right. The caricature of libertarianism is some kind of Mad Max dystopia. <laughs> yeah. But 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 really, um, if that was the result, it would be because the vast majority of people wanted it that way. Because the reality of libertarianism is that people are free to cooperate and get on with their lives and achieve great things, but without the government constantly putting the brakes on them. You know, the only brakes the government should be applying are when what you're doing is infringing on the rights of someone else. And so if if it if libertarianism was to end in the Mad Max dystopia, it's because the majority of people wanted it that way. <laughs> and as we know that the majority of people do not want it that way, you know, libertarians like roads as much as anyone. <laughs> libertarians like healthcare and they like, you know, railways and airports. And, you know, there, there is no reason why libertarianism would result in that caricature. But it is the one that's painted so often. Absolutely. Um, one of the sort of key areas you mentioned was obviously crime and punishment. Mm. Um, so what overall changes, if any, to the way in which criminal offenders are sentenced does the policy make? And, and as in what is considered a severe or a lesser crime and how are they subsequently sentenced? Okay, so uh, at the moment, um, and I suppose we would have a lot of agreement from many people with this. We believe that crime should be deterred by appropriate punishment. But something that doesn't happen so much now, but which we believe should happen, and so we've got it as one of our policies, is that wherever possible, the punishment aspect should include restoring the losses of any victim. And at the moment, it's treated that there are specific victims. They have names. They have families, they have addresses where they live. But so often um, the justice system appears to treat the criminal as though they have committed a crime against society. Well, they haven't. That crime was committed against an individual who has suffered a loss or injury of some kind. And so we believe that restoring the loss has to be part of any sentence where possible. and. Incarceration, is it overused? Probably. And so we believe that should be used to protect people from violent criminals and perhaps repeat offenders of lesser crimes. But by and large, unless they are a danger to others, why would you incarcerate them? And why wouldn't you have some kind of sentence that would actually restore financially or otherwise the loss of the victim? So they're kind of two core threads running through what we've got going on and we don't expect prison to be um, a, a pleasant place we expect it to be a place of reform but also punishment so we expect that it will become more difficult for uncooperative um, inmates but for those who cooperate who are behaving themselves there's no reason why they wouldn't have access to education and other things that will that will actually aid reform you know, people often criticise the prison system as being a yeah. a school, if you like, where people come out worse than how they went in. And what we're saying is, well, first of all, we'll send fewer people to prison for some things. Violent people will always go to prison. People who can't stop committing lesser crimes will go to prison. But otherwise, you know, we, we're not convinced that that's the way, that's the correct way to do it. Um, you know, and... People often criticise the justice system, don't they, because of how soon violent criminals are released. And so we're going to be a bit tougher on that too. Um, people often criticise that males get harsher sentences than females. We're going to make that equal. But the crime is the crime. and It's got nothing to do with who you are by an arbitrary label. Let each circumstance be judged individually. 
you know so there's yep. you know there's a few things that we're looking at there without reading the whole manifesto to you i i, I think there's there's a few things that a lot of people like um yeah i mean i i go the diff a different way from there i think the school system is more like the prison system rather than the prison <laughs> system. It's more like the school system but no i i do exactly uh, i get what you say i totally agree one thing i particularly dislike is the hate crime label uh, because uh. to me a crime is a crime you know if yeah. you stab someone it doesn't matter what the motive is you've stabbed them you know it's it's criminal it, you know regardless of any label you want to put on it you know that, in my opinion yeah, and, and I agree with you, and I've written many times online about this, and you'll find some articles I've written on the Libertarian Party website, where I'm basically calling for an end to the category of hate crime, because I don't think that you can separate a certain group of people and have crimes against them be treated with particular harshness just because of the arbitrary labels we apply to them. Um Everyone should be equal before the law. Now, this isn't to say that we're going to be light on criminals and we're going to wink at racism or sexism or, you know, whatever kind of motives people have for doing what they do. They're not going to be let off, you know, for, for assault or any other crime that they may commit. But we're not going to make it a harsher penalty because of the identity of the person the crime was committed against. Because for libertarians, and certainly it's my view, um, the individual is the smallest minority. And so each individual deserves to be treated the same before the law. And if, if the crime is particularly harsh, that's what, will, that's what will garner the harsh punishment, not the identity of the victim. How does the Libertarian Party intend to reform the justice system? As in, what changes need to be made and what could be done uh, to implement those changes, if, if any at all? Okay, so, I mean, part of that sort of overlaps onto policing, and I don't want to go into too much detail on that in answering this question, but um, a question that often comes up is in relation to the death penalty. And... I think most people will agree there are some crimes for which the only appropriate punishment is capital punishment. There are some crimes that are so heinous there is no real chance of reform or natural justice says you did something so bad that you can't, you can't pay for it by a little bit of time inside because when you come out justice still won't have been served. And perhaps one of those crimes is, you know, unjustified murder in the first degree, where you've taken someone else's life. You can't ever put it back. No amount of time inside will, and then a release after 20 years, will return that life to the person that you murdered. And so natural justice says you can't have your life. Now, the big challenge for, for myself and for libertarians is, do we dare give the state the power to take the life of an individual in that way. And then we also consider that there can be miscarriages of justice and people could, in theory, be sentenced who were innocent of the crime um, that they're being accused of or even that they're being found guilty of. We know that this has happened in history. And so we have to take a step back However strongly we might think that natural justice demands capital punishment in some circumstances, the Libertarian Party policy steps back and says, because of the margin of error, because of the chance that an innocent person could be put to death, we won't actually go for capital punishment. And so what we have is what we call capital crimes would receive the maximum sentence, which is the remainder of their natural life, incarcerated. Now, what that does is it does remove that individual from society, but it provides that little avenue of escape if somehow, at some future date, which does happen, more evidence comes to light which finds that the punishment was the wrong one or that they were completely innocent of the crime. Now, a lot of people will struggle with that, but perhaps those who are thinking, no, 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 capital punishment all the way, 
you know, if they're guilty, jury of my peers, all of that, I, I put it to them this way. If the state murders an innocent man, even through the justice system, who then pays for that crime? Because the state can't be held responsible for a crime because it's not an individual. Do we do we then sentence the jury and the judge? It's a whole uh, can of worms, isn't it? Exactly. And so what we say is, look, we understand that natural justice demands this. And so we're going to go, we can go up to the line and say remainder of natural life. That's the harshest penalty. And, you know, that would be for unjustified murder in the first degree, aggravated torture, extreme violence. It would be, you know, repeated rapists, um, repeated child abusers, that kind of thing, war crimes, you yep. know, aggravated theft with a deadly weapon, you know, repeated. Those things say, look, you are not using your individual freedoms in a way that respects the individual freedoms of others and therefore your freedoms are forfeit. But we're not going to kill you because more evidence might come to light <laughs> and that, that might justify your release. So that's kind of where we stand on that. So that's a major reform that we're looking at. There seems to be, I don't know, I mean, I mentioned it earlier, this sort of expedient softening of sentencing and it's all about how much it costs to keep people incarcerated and things like this. But at the end of the day, we're, we're undermining the natural justice that holds um, sort of freedoms in place. And I don't think you can do that and expect a society to remain peaceful and stable. No. Um, I find it interesting as well, um, you m mentioned about like the softer sentencing, uh, especially for some like uh, the quite heinous crimes. Yet if you're charged with a crime financially against the state, Oh, they throw the book at you on that one, then they, you know. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> if you fail to, to tick their boxes or, you know, comply with their rules, absolutely they throw the book at you. But you harm another individual. You actually violate the human rights of someone else. Yeah. And it's treated with much more leniency. And yeah. What we see there is that the state seeks to impose control in favour of its own protection, but it doesn't care very much for your protection. No. Um, one of the other areas of the uh, home affairs policy is immigration, which which I'm sure you can appreciate in recent years with the whole Brexit. I really didn't want to say that word today, but um, immigration has been a bit of a hot potato politically during the whole Brexit sort of shenanigans. Mm -hmm. um, how will the party address immigration with regards to uh, what terms people can enter the country uh, and how they would obtain access uh, to any state benefits such as healthcare, etc. Um, how would they qualify and so forth? Um, can you tell us a bit about that, please? Well, there will be some changes in that area. Um, we, as libertarians, um, we're not actually particularly in favour of um, blocking free movement, but because of the nature of welfare and law and order and things like that, um, we will pose certainly in the short term some limits on immigration and so we will adopt a points-based system um, we don't think that totally free movement of people into the uk is practical certainly while the welfare system provides an incentive certainly while other countries are not broadly libertarian so points-based system is where we're going to go but even those who come through um, to live in the UK based on their points won't have automatic access to, say, to state support um, or subsidised housing or benefits of any kind. And we're hoping there to, to change the sort of foundation on which immigration currently exists onto one that's much more sustainable but also much more fair. You know, it's not... It's not for the state to tell hardworking people who are scrimping and saving for their own futures that it's their job to fund um, migrants coming into the country against their will. Now, I believe many people will choose to through charities and other organisations, but it's not for the state to, to coerce that onto people who have different priorities, who are trying to provide for their own families, you know, to, to add to their burden. Um, so immigrants won't receive a national insurance number until they've had at least five years sort of contribution 
into an NI approved scheme and that kind of thing. So they can't withdraw out of it until they put into it. Um, you know, we, we would require anyone granted residency to prove they have adequate medical insurance and that kind of thing, which I know a lot of people who sort of emotionally feel that's quite harsh. Um, we have to be practical. We have to say, how do we afford this? Because the state doesn't have any of its own money. You know, anything the state spends, it first has to take from productive, hardworking people. Absolutely. And and currently it does it by force. That's right. uh, and it's arbitrary. It doesn't care whether you can afford it. It makes you pay them first. And, you know, that, that, that can't be right. And it certainly can't be right to then do that and then give it to, you know, other people who who aren't necessarily, haven't paid in themselves. So we are going to change all of that. Um, and at the same time, we, we are actually going to have a proper hard border in that regard. You know, asylum seekers will be held airside. You know, their case will be heard as quickly as can be managed. But we're not going to be releasing people into the into the country and then trying to find them later in order to sort out you know their asylum situation it's it's going to be a hard border and people entering the country will have to do it following the rules and regulations that are set up um you know as a libertarian i i, I would hope that eventually the whole the whole world is more libertarian and these borders don't need to exist but until then they will and so we have to manage them correctly the policy refers to something called sponsored immigration uh, can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, now that I believe is one of our really innovative ideas and it's also partly to do with ending delays to married or civil partners entering a country. So we, we many people will have a friend or know of someone who has effectively married a foreign national and they are now living separately in their own home country and I don't think that can be right. You know, the freedom of association to choose who you marry, to be able to spend your life with that person is being violated by doing that. And the state at the moment, in spite of what it says about immigration, constantly separates married couples and families in this way. And you'd think that they would get a priority, but they don't. Um, not particularly. And there's great delays in reuniting families and married couples. And so we are looking at establishing a sponsored immigration process, which effectively allows any private individual to become responsible by contract with a migrant. And that person would be responsible for their conduct and welfare and whereabouts, you know, for a limited period of time under, you know, particular conditions. And that means that, you know, if, if we wanted to employ someone from another country, you wouldn't have to, you know, necessarily go through a long difficult process you just say, i'm going to sponsor them i'm responsible for them while they're in this country you know and that that carries serious legal responsibilities um and that will make people think twice about who they invite and who they sponsor yep. um but it gets rid of all kinds of delays and frees that whole thing up a bit i don't see why you couldn't why, why should we prevent a a married person from sponsoring their own spouse or or someone employing someone or even a personal friend why not you know they're a guest in my house why would the state seek to prevent that provided that person is abiding by the law and the sponsoring individual is fully aware of their legal responsibilities for the behavior of that person you know i, I think that's self-policing in a way certainly is an interesting concept which um, I think could work quite well and um, I think it would sort of solve a lot of the in inverted commas illegal immigration anyway you know because I think a lot a lot of illegal immigration is things like uh, as you say um, people's uh, friends relatives spouses who sort of want to join them in the country so I actually think that that's a positive um, innovation on behalf of the party and I think that would work well myself mm. Now, a lot of people hearing these policies will think, well, that won't work because. And what I'd invite those people to do is think, well, they're not the only things we're going to change. And so 
some of the things we say we might be projecting onto our current legal system, our current immigration system, our current welfare system. And, and the fact is, we're going to change all of these things. And so what we've tried to do is create a set of policies which increase individual freedom, handing the responsibility for that freedom back to the individual as well, um, where all the policies sort of hang together and complement each other. So, yeah, a lot of the policies I talk about won't work in our existing system. They're not intended to work in our existing system. Our existing system is broken. We're going to change much more of it, and all of this will fit together. Now, as, as you and I both know, libertarians are totally hardcore advocates for being crackheads, cocaine, and whiskey. <laughs> um, you know, we all love the drugs. <laughs> Um, we well, think everyone funny, should be shooting up, but <laughs> apparently so. Anyway, that's what I'm told. <laughs> um, so how does the policy address uh, drugs and what's the state's role, if any? Would What would the state's role be? <laughs> well, it, it's funny because that is, again, another caricature. I haven't met any of these people, by the way, <laughs> You know, in my work in the party. Um, most people who become libertarian do it because they both accept and desire their individual freedom and the responsibility that goes with it. Yes. No one I know in the Libertarian Party is saying, I want the freedom, but you can mop up after me. No one's saying that. And so they then tend to behave quite responsibly because they know that they are going to have to clean up their own mess, <laughs> to put it in that way. And, and so the drugs and alcohol and tobacco policy sort of takes a similar view now in introducing this i'm going to i'm going to just mention the concept of decriminalize or legalize and this is something that often comes up and i'd like to i'd like to kind of make the the case for decriminalize uh, as opposed to legalize because as i see it there is they are two fundamentally different approaches to what you can do with drugs tobacco alcohol all of those things if you if you legalize something you essentially wrap it up in legislation legalize is what you do if you want to um, license it and you want to tax it well i don't think that fits with our core policy of freedom and responsibility okay so what our drug policy seeks to do is respect individual rights while maintaining individual responsibility. And so in terms of drugs, what that means is that the state will neither profit from, nor promote, nor subsidize harmful drug products, nor interfere with individuals' free choices in that regard, nor protect them from the consequences. In other words, the state is going to stand back and say, you know what, if you're that stupid, <laughs> If you really want to do that, um, we're not going to stop you, but we're not going to clean up the mess afterwards either. Um, and we're not going to subsidise it for you, which is often what happens when you legalise something and licence it and tax it. All of a sudden, the state is becoming a pusher. Yes. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Yes. And, and what we're saying is, well, well, no, because the state becoming a pusher um, actually wraps up an awful lot of people who don't agree with that in enforcing them to agree and be part of that system of funding it and all of that. And so what we're saying is no, these things are for the individual to decide. So we're not going to be a pusher and we're not going to profit from it or promote it or subsidize it or interfere with you or protect you from the consequences. And uh, people look at it twice then because what a lot of people really want is they want they want drugs to be legalised. And then they want the NHS to clean up their mess, af mess after them. And they want the police to be kind to them for doing stupid things while they're high. And what we're saying is, well, the NHS won't clean up your mess after you. And you're going to be held responsible for whatever you do <laughs> under the influence. And yeah. we ultimately think that responsibility will be recognised, that people will, they'll see the freedom They'll see the responsibility that goes with it, and they will choose accordingly. Yeah, because I, I think um, it was Portugal who have decriminalised drugs. 
um, and some like their actual crime statistics have absolutely plummeted in relation to that as far as I believe when they've started treating them more as addicts rather than criminals and um, one of the things which I've always sort of shouted about when I talk about this issue is if you look at the prison population now I have no sort of hard and fast statistic on this I am just speaking purely um, from observation but I, I would comfortably suggest that at least 50 to 60 percent of the prison population uh, in there for drug related crimes you know many of them literally for smoking a plant in their own home yeah and so yeah. you can imagine the i mean if the resources that would free up in terms of you know p the justice system police and prisons and also think of the lives it, it, it ruins because you, you have a criminal conviction for smoking a flower you know that that really inhibits your future in a lot of ways you know with certain job mm. prospects and so forth and and let me make a personal point here if i may and in making this personal point i hope i also make a point about how libertarian politics works on a personal level i don't drink i don't smoke i don't believe in taking drugs or smoking marijuana on a personal level i have already decided i'm never going to do any of those things Absolutely. and yet i have no desire enforcing the state to impose my personal moral code on everyone else <laughs> no. and that's where a lot of people sort of it's it's a paradigm shift for them they judge people by their own methods yes. they believe that if something is right then the government should make everyone do it and so when they see someone like me who thinks you know doesn't drink doesn't smoke you know blah 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 right He's going to make me live like that if he's ever in power. Well, actually, no. <laughs> no, I'm not. And I hope that I'm making that point here. And that's the libertarian approach, is that it's about individual freedom and individual responsibility. It's not about me imposing my views on someone else. And yet, that ping pong game of politics I was talking about earlier, that is exactly what they want to do. And when the left wing are in, they're all loving, forcing all the right wingers to do what they want for a change. And then the right wing get in and they're like, we're loving forcing the left wingers to do what we want for a change. And we, in the, as the libertarians who are neither left wing nor right wing, say, what are you doing? Why are you all trying to force each other to live according to your pattern or your idea of utopia? You're all wrong anyway, because none of you, if you want to take Jordan Peterson, none of you are clever enough you know, to yeah. know what that is. And so what we're trying to do with, as libertarians is we're, we're creating the space um, in which people can grow. And that, that requires freedom and it requires allowing people to make their own mistakes and learn from them. Whereas, you know, the nanny state wants to foresee all the mistakes and prevent you ever doing them or ever learning from them and taking all your freedom while they do it. So, you know, it's it's for me that the point is a personal one. I don't agree with drugs, but I don't agree either with forcing my view on everyone else. And I certainly don't agree with the way the prison system is is used. We've probably seen the joke going around Facebook. You know, it's a little cartoon and it's a policeman talking to a, a young man. You know, if you smoke drugs, it'll ruin your life. And then they're smoking drugs and they arrest him and put him in prison and ruin his life. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I am exactly on the same page as you. I, I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't do any sort of hardcore drugs. I, I do aspirin <laughs> for medical purposes. Okay, all right, I'll, I'll do that. <laughs> Paracetamol for me, fine. But, um, like, I, I've, I always try to explain this to people. It's, I really don't care what an individual does to their own body. It's their choice, but they live with the consequences. As long as they do not cause any sort of harm or injury or any sort of infringement upon another, it's their business, what they mm. do to themselves, mm. you know? Mm. And that as long as is, to make it clear to everyone who's listened to this, that as long as they don't harm anyone else is absolutely fundamental to it because we're talking freedom and responsibility, not just freedom. And so, you know, the way we put it in our uh, manifesto is, you know, the responsibility for your health care is yours. You know, if you're a drug user, you're going to struggle with that because it's not necessarily going to be good for you. Um, if you commit crimes while you are under the influence, you're going to be responsible for that. We don't have to create a separate crime. 
you know, the crimes are the crimes already, whether it's theft or assault or, you know, driving under the influence. You know, those things are already there. Yes. We just have to enforce them and say, look, if you're going to do, you know, alcohol is currently a legal drug and people drive under the influence, you know. And so those things, people will still do that and then they'll still face the consequences for doing that. So we're, we're, what we're not saying is it's a free for all and everyone can do what they like without consequences. Absolutely not. You can enjoy your personal freedom, but what you can't escape is the consequences of your actions. Now, one thing I wasn't overly familiar with, I heard of it, but I didn't know much about it, um, is the Pelian Principles. So mm. Tell us a bit about the Pelian Principles uh, that are, are proposed in the policy regarding policing. <laughs> so, Pelian has nothing to do with marmalade or oranges. <laughs> just get well, that. I, I know nothing then. Like what I thought, <laughs> the little I thought I knew, I obviously didn't. <laughs> so... Uh, some people will know that when the police service was originally set up in Britain, it was by uh, Robert Peel, um, who was a influential politician at the time. Um, and he sort of set out some basic principles of policing or general instructions, and all new officers were given them. And they were based around the idea, and don't forget, Without a police force already, you know, for anything to be dealt with, it, a lot of it would have been on a common law basis. You know, who are you getting arrested by if there's no police? Well, it's it's citizens, isn't it, who have caught you in the act and they're dragging you off to be dealt with. So we are we're seeing the birth, you know, in the early 1800s of this sort of police service. Um, but how how does how does a police service like that operate without suddenly looking like a branch of the army? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, because this is now, you know, the official one. And so he devised um, these principles of policing that would help um, prevent crime and disorder. In fact, this is the first principle, prevent crime and disorder as an alternative to their repression by military force and severity of legal punishment. So prior to the police preventing crime and disorder, the thing that was supposed to make you behave within the law was a really harsh punishment, you know, hanging for a loaf of bread or lifetime transportation, you know, harsh punishment to make you afraid of doing anything wrong. And, you know, you could be, you know, the same kinds of punishments were for, you know, poaching, you know, on a landowner's property um, because you were starving to death, you know, a little bit harsh and so we look at that time and we think wow weren't the punishments harsh you know how could they hang children for stealing food and all this kind of thing but that was how they did it because there wasn't anything else they hoped that harshness of punishment would do it or the other one of course was they'd send in the army you know the people are protesting send in the army and of course that didn't always end well you know we only have to look at you know what happened you know in in manchester there's a film been made about it was it Manchester or Liverpool? I can't remember. When uh, working class demanded the right to vote. You know, and the response was a military one. <laughs> yeah. And so Robert Peel's saying, look, we've got to do better than this. So he devises the, the police force with these principles that recognise that the, for the police to function, they have to do it with the consent of the people that they are policing. So, to sum it up in a trite phrase, the police are the people and the people are the police. And so it's not a top-down imposition of force, or at least it shouldn't be, or how is it different from a military response to disorder? It, so in order to make sure it is different, um, it has to be on the same level as, you know, these are the people policing themselves. And what we have identified as a party is that the police service, as it happens now, has, has moved away from that. Um, it's partly not it's not always the police that is the reason for this it's also that we have so many laws being created all the time there are so many things that are a crime and there's so many things that the police are being called on to sort of deal with that that it seems like it's the government versus you know the, the vast body of people and the police are merely their agents and we're saying look this isn't this isn't really working. Plus, you know, as the police become, 
separated from the people in the sense that they're talking now about how they can use tasers, um, which might be a perfectly reasonable thing to allow policemen to carry, you know, given the nature of some crimes, the fact that, unfortunately and very sadly, policemen and women have died in the line of duty. Yes. Um, the Libertarian Party looks at that and thinks, well, that's true. It also recognises that civilians have died going about their lawful business at the hands of criminals. And so we look at this and we say, well, the police and the people should be more equal. You know, if the police are going to be armed, why, why not the people? You know, what, how are they different? And so it's our view that the surest way to block tyranny you know, of the police separating themselves so far from the people that they become almost a, a, a paramilitary arm um, of the government um, is to make sure that we keep that really strong link, that you recognise that the policemen in your area are are, are your representatives. Yes. I, you know? I mean, in well, I'm hoping to do a future episode on the Constitution, which uh, mm. I've written up. And one of the things in the Constitution... Uh, oh well, the proposed constitution, I should say, is yes. how the police would be taking an oath to the constitution rather than to the state as such. So, yes. you know, that pretty much falls in line exactly with what you're saying because the constitution is there to protect the people from tyranny, you know, so... Exactly, and and you see in the US how the constitution has just been trampled all over. I mean, they still have, in my view, one of the, the greatest constitutional documents ever to exist in the history of humanity. You know, as a, as a civilization that really built its foundations on individual freedom, on recognizing that they had just fought a war against a tyrant. And the only way to prevent that happening again was to lock the government in chains and completely and absolutely define that the power of the state comes from the individuals it governs and not that the individuals get their freedoms from the state. I mean, that was absolutely innovative. It just no time in history had that ever really been the case, I think. And what we're trying to do is walk down the same path. Um, of course, if you, if you create a police force with, which has extra force and extra rights that the people couldn't possibly have delegated, that's when it all starts to fall apart. And so we are we are looking at re-establishing the right to remain silent. As you know, a few years ago, the um, your rights being read to you by the police were modified. Yes. You used to have the right to remain silent. Now they say, well, if you don't talk, but then try and talk later in court, it might affect your case. And we say, well, hang on a minute. Where's that from? If the police are the people and the people are the police, then you're a fellow citizen in uniform. You are carrying delegated authority from your fellow citizens. You are not above them or separate from them. And so we don't see how that can work. So we're going to return the right to remain silent. We're looking at establishing a framework through which private security can work cooperatively with the police. We are in making it more democratic we're looking at having policing areas overseen, which will be much more local. You know, it won't necessarily be the whole county anymore. It will be more local. And you will elect your chief constable or your sheriff, depending on how we decide to organise it um, locally. And if you're unhappy with how the police operate, you can vote them out. And this is different from the role of police and crime commissioner. You know, these are these are the direct, you know, commanding officers of the local police if you like and so you're electing those um there's a whole change there in the way the police works you know more than it appears on the surface you want to reduce paperwork of course the whole point of preventing crime so it doesn't it's not deterred by harshness of punishment or military action you know is you've got to have that presence but also people have to feel like they can act in the prevention of crime themselves. So we're looking at um, getting rid of PCSOs, having real police people, but then um, opening up the gates for special constables and volunteers to work alongside the police. 
deputies, if you like, um, so that we really are. Everyone's the police. But, you know, we're not being petty about it. You know, we're not reporting people because they've hung their washing out on their own day or they've, they've had a bonfire or said something mean on Twitter. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> you know, it's about real vi- rights violations. And that's why it has to work hand in hand with, you know, other changes in legislation and the way the law works, because, you know, there are so many things that are are counted as a crime, which really aren't. You know, if we if we start from the premise that a crime is a violation of rights and it comes out of that, then a lot of things, they're just rules. They're just rules and they're not necessarily um, to be policed. You uh, mentioned the role of police commissioner and so mm. how, how will the hierarchy of the policing structure take form, you know, at state level? Okay, so and, and that's the beauty of it. It doesn't take form at the state level in a sense, it takes form at the local level. And so even if you imagine that it was at the county level, though I I imagine it will be smaller than that, um, you would elect the commander of all the police. Every so many years, they would be back up for election. Or unless, of course, as you can, you can recall them and say, you are doing such a bad job at halting crime and you're being far too overbearing and people that aren't actually committing crimes, we want to replace you. Imagine being able to do that and actually making a difference. At the moment, so much is actually controlled right from the centre, you know, in Whitehall, that we're saying this is absolutely no good. You know, no one has any freedom to operate. You know, it's computer says no all the time and everyone's following procedure. But we know why that happens. (laughs) You know, if people just follow the rules, I'm just following orders, you know, terrible things can happen. And so we're saying, no, 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 no. We've got to bring it right back to the local level. So you, you can elect the commander of your police. Um, if there's a complaint to be made, um, we're saying it will go to a judge or magistrate to determine whether it's frivolous or not. But then it'll be a neighbouring force acting independently that will investigate it, overseen by local citizen representatives. So there'll be none of this whitewash, you know, as we see so often, um, mistakes were made, lessons were learned. There'll be no more of that. It will be what actually happened, the citizens themselves are on the panel investigating it, nothing will be secret. There'll be no hiding behind your uniform. And so we expect then the police to be as they should be. But then we expect it anyway because we would see much more citizen involvement with them. And we wouldn't see such a divide, you know, that the police are there to push you around. No, the, the policeman is your next door neighbour and is helping keep the place where people's rights aren't being violated. I mean, that's a whole different concept, isn't it? I mean, wouldn't that be wonderful? Um, you've, you've pretty much sort of uh, answered everything what I'm about to ask now, but um, is there anything else you think um, in the overall policing of the UK that would change under the Libertarian Party's uh, home affairs policy? I think the thing that stands out to me, and I would certainly love to get involved myself, is that we would want to reinvigorate the Neighbourhood Watch programme and special constables, volunteers and deputies. Because I think when you when you are involved yourself, you get rid of the them and us, which can often create a lot of antagonism between ordinary people and the police. Um, and the police will behave in a certain way because they're going to come home and live on your street. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And you're going to behave in a certain way because the policeman who is representing you in terms of preventing crime is your friend and neighbour and you volunteer to work with him every second Tuesday. (laughs) And I think that that is a much better place to be. Dan, I want to thank you very much for coming on today and um, answering all these questions. I found it very enlightening and I'm sure those, both my listeners, (laughs) will be... um, better with the knowledge for it because as I say it's one thing sort of <laughs> reading uh, these policies but when we can have some with you uh, such as yourself um, it is a, a, a big sort of help in understanding that so thank you very much um, is there anything you would like to sort of put in here anything you'd like to plug tell us about your website Dan mm, okay so um, I, I have actually launched uh, my own personal site for party candidate reasons and that's danlidicott.com 
um, where you'll get to read more about what my thoughts are on all of these things. And I, I've done that for a few reasons, partly because um, I see that um, it's a useful way of putting my ideas out there, but partly because I see how at risk um, libertarians are of being censored through social media. Yes. Um, and so I have basically created my own platform. And while um, I'm subject to terms and conditions on Twitter and Facebook and, you know, all, all of those other platforms, which I accept, you know, I'm a libertarian, I've accepted the terms and conditions. But because of that, I accept that the service could be turned off at any time at whim. And I have no real complaint against it because it's private property. And so... I've created my own platform, danlidicott.com, where it's up to me whether I turn it on or off. <laughs> not, not that I'm saying anything that is particularly controversial, and I always try and keep within the terms and conditions. I don't, honestly don't think I have any opinions or I'm saying anything that Facebook or Twitter would find offensive or contravenes their guidelines. But because we know that um, increasingly to be not a socialist left-winger is to be mislabeled as something else. Um, uh, you know, it's a precaution I've taken, but I enjoy it. It means I've got a platform where I can always say what I think. Excellent. So check that out, www.danlidicott.com. Um, Dan, tell me where you're going to be on October the 19th. <laughs> on October the 19th, I will be in um, one of the great centers of the Industrial Revolution, Manchester and the reason for that will be that we are holding our party conference in Manchester there and I would encourage everyone who is in the area or who is able to travel to come and join us this is your opportunity to talk face to face with the grassroots and the leadership of the Libertarian Party now, I can assure you that we believe in freedom of speech you can ask us any question um, you know, either formally in, in the meeting or, you know, just face to face as we mingle and socialize afterwards. And no one's going to take offense at a question. And we'll gladly explain why we believe what we do. You have your opportunity to try and persuade us, perhaps. Um, but it's going to be a great event. Um, it's all on the theme of individual liberty. And we'll be launching officially a full manifesto. And we believe that it is the most um, refreshing, new, innovative manifesto that you will see in the next five years. I wholeheartedly agree. Uh, Dan Lidicott, thank you very much for coming on. It's been brilliant. Thank you. A pleasure. Okay, folks, I hope you enjoyed that very insightful chat with Dan Lidicott there. Before I wrap this up, I just want to remind you of my exclusive offer to you, my listeners. I'm offering a massive 25% discount on tickets to the Libertarian Party Conference in Manchester this October. Go to the official website of the Libertarian Party, which is www.libertarianparty.co.uk. Just follow the links to the booking page and enter the discount code Libertarian. One two three, to get your twenty five percent off at the checkout. That's libertarian one two three, which one word and a capital L as well. It's case sensitive, so I'm told. And that's your twenty five percent off, and that offer stands right up until the day of the conference. I also just want to tell you about a couple of episodes coming up next week. I have a very intriguing and inspirational episode coming your way. I have Ryan Collins on the show. Now, I don't want to give away too much of his story because I want him to do that. Uh, but it really is a remarkable story. And if you've ever felt that you've hit rock bottom in your life or felt trapped in the daily grind or in some sort of existence that just isn't uh, very happy, then I urge you to tune in and listen to Ryan's story. It, it will positively impact you. And I cannot recommend enough listening to this remarkable young man's story and how he has lifted himself out of uh, a very dark place to be riding amazingly high right now that's coming next week and the week after 
I am delighted to be covering one of my favourite topics, <laughs> monetary policy. <laughs> I'm thrilled to have Brian Vickery on as a guest, who is pretty much a man after my own heart. Though we do have a slight minor difference in a few particular views, generally we're pretty much on the same page. Uh, Brian is the official monetary policy and pensions policy spokesman for the Libertarian Party, and he will be coming on to discuss the all-new Libertarian Party monetary policy that is part of the new manifesto. I can't wait for that one, and make sure you don't miss it. Uh, also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast at www.garethseward.podbean.com so that you get all the latest episodes and you don't miss any and you can also look me up on YouTube and BitChute as well, because I'm on there somewhere. Okay, thank you very much for listening, and I'll see you next time. The